Okay. Welcome, everybody. I'm Janet B. I've recovered from compulsive eating and bulimia here in North Carolina. Um, we are going to be talking about step three. So if you have your big books, we're going to start on page 58, how it works. I remember first going, um, my first, I don't know, five, six years in OA, first, and they would read the beginning of how it works at every meeting, right? They did that at some meetings. And but it never stuck in. It was just like, blah, 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 like intro words that, you know, went through my head before I could share about like my rotten day and my rotten life and how I couldn't stop eating. But let's try and like give it the attention it deserves because it has some really great stuff here. So page 58 starts by saying, rarely have we seen a person fail who has thoroughly followed our path. So that means I am not going to fail if I thoroughly follow this path. So if someone comes along and they're just like teaching a different way, mm -mm, that's we're not guaranteed we're going to recover with any kind of different way. This is the path. So we really need to know it. And they say, okay, who doesn't recover? It's people who cannot or will not completely give themselves to this simple program. People who want to negotiate who say, well, I can't make three calls, I'll make two. I can't go to this many meetings. I don't wanna weigh and measure my food. We completely do it. And especially what I believe, completely give themselves ultimately to God, to surrender ourselves to God. And we're gonna be talking about how to do that. Then they go on and they spend the whole rest of the paragraph talking about honesty. And they go so far as to say that if we don't grasp and develop a manner of living which demands rigorous honesty, so not just suggested, it's a nice idea, demands rigorous honesty, it says, yeah, their chances are less than average. And even people with grave emotional and mental disorder, so that means people with depression or bipolar, can recover if they have the capacity to be honest. So I'm gonna put it really succinctly. If we are dishonest, if I'm dishonest, it's like I'm taking a big black pen and writing the words, keep out God across my heart. God absolutely won't coexist with dishonesty. So if you're someone like me, the way I used to be sitting there struggling saying, I can't figure out why I'm not binging, the first thing I always ask someone is, is there any area in your life if you're where you're dishonest? Because if there is, it's not going to work. We have to be honest. Okay, so, so they start telling us how it works. So the first thing they tell us is we have to be honest. The next paragraph says, our stories disclose in a general way what we used to be like, living on self-will. What happened? We found God. These beautiful 12 steps showed us how to have a relationship with God and what we are like now, living serene, useful lives. And then it always tells me who can be sponsored. So if someone asks me if I'm going to sponsor them, I always point them to these sen this sentence because this tells me who I'm allowed to sponsor. It says, if you have decided you want what we have and are willing to go to any lengths to get it, then, then and only then, are you ready to take certain steps? So the first thing it says is it's a decision. 
right? I can make a decision to go to any length. So willingness doesn't mean that I want to. I mean, I remember when my kids were babies and they would cry in the middle of the night or at 4 a.m. I wasn't willing. I didn't want to get up and go change their diaper or feed them or whatever it was but I did it anyway. I made a decision that I was going to put my will in action to taking care of my kids. So if you're willing to go to any length to get it, and if you want what we have, what do we have anyway? And step 12 tells us, step 12 starts out with a promise. Having had a spiritual awakening as the result of these steps. So what is a spiritual awakening? Melissa gave a whole beautiful talk on it last week. A personality change sufficient to overcome alcoholism or compulsive eating. So that means like God basically came in and took my selfish self-centered heart, rewired it somehow so that I'm a little less self-centered, a little more concerned with other people and what God wants. This isn't something I do myself. I do not know how to rewire my own heart. But if I work these 12 steps, that allows God to come in and do the, that work for me. So it says, okay, if that's what you want and you're willing to do whatever it takes, then you're ready to take certain steps. So if someone comes to me and says, you know, I'm, I don't want to make the calls or I don't want to, you know, go to meetings or be on a food plan. I say, I'm not allowed to sponsor you. Page 58 tells me I'm not allowed. People are not entitled to a sponsor just because they ask. They have to want what we have to offer, freedom from compulsive eating by having a spiritual experience and willing to do whatever it takes to get it. And then it says, at some of these, we balked. Well, of course we did. Like, this is hard. The book comes right out and tells us, right? You know, simple, but not easy. Who of us like the leveling of our pride, the confession of shortcomings? Although I got to admit, I am maybe the only person I know who loved doing a fourth step and a fifth step because that mean that meant that for you know pages and pages and then hours and hours, I got to write and talk about my favorite topic myself. Um, but in all seriousness, if we do it well and right, it's painful because as our book tells us, we end up swallowing and digesting some big and ugly chunks of truth about ourselves. So it says, we thought we could find an easier, softer way. I was the queen of easier, softer ways. I spent six and a half years in Overeaters Anonymous trying to do the easier, softer way. All it got me was extra weight on my body and major surgery on my esophagus from how severe my bulimia got and a lot of wrecked relationships in my rear view mirror. This is the easier, softer way. And then it says, remember, we deal with alcohol, food, cunning, baffling, powerful. Okay, did anyone else think how weird that line is? You take an inanimate object like alcohol or food and say it's cunning. I mean, you wouldn't say a pen could be cunning, baffling, and powerful. And really, like, how cunning, baffling, and powerful could, you know, some food or drink be? It doesn't make sense. Unless you think there's some kind of, like, not very nice force behind this. Cunning, you know, trying to trip me up. Baffling, confusing. I have a pretty high IQ. This thing baffled the heck out of me. 
and powerful. This thing is way more powerful than I am. And it says, without help, it is too much for us. And we're, okay, great. There's 142 of us here. Can you help me? And they say, mm -mm. there is one who has all power. That one is God. May you find him now. We can give each other fellowship and support and advice, but we can't give each other power. If the lights are out on my in my house, you all could give me lectures about electricity. You could give me assignments about electricity and plugging things in and, you know, ben how Benjamin Frank, Frank, he was the one, right? Discovered electricity with a key, Gosh, second grade science. But that would not get me any power until someone told me you have to go flip the circuit breaker or plug it in, and then I do it. Without help, it is too much. There is one who has all power. Remember the chapter we read um, two weeks ago, We Agnostics, what was our problem? Lack of power. There's one who has all power. That one is God. And then it's like they're saying a prayer for us. May you find him now. That's the solution. And then they tell us half measures availed us nothing. Again, queen of half measures. Um, but for all you teachers there, if someone gets a 50% half right on a test, what grade do they get? They get an F. And I would say even here, 90% measures generally don't get us very far. We have to abandon ourselves to this program, to God as we understand him. And it says, we stood at the turning point. Okay, so where are we if we're at the turning point? We said we're willing to go to any lengths because that's a requirement to even begin. We've admitted we were powerless over food and our lives are unmanageable. And if y'all don't um, get what powerlessness is, if you go on Recovery Jam under other resources, there's a one-page document called The Broken Bridge that explains, I tried to explain succinctly, the mental obsession and how it works with compulsive eaters. So we realize we're powerless, that our lives are unmanageable. They don't work. And we've taken a second step. We've come to believe that a power greater than ourselves, God, God, as we understand him, could restore us to sanity, that there is a God and that he has power and that he can restore me to sanity. At this point, it's just that he could, not that he will, but we'll get there. So they say, okay, we're at the turning point. We believe we're powerless. There's a God who can restore me to sanity, but he probably doesn't want to. And it says, what do we do? We stood at the turning point. We asked his protection and care with complete abandon. So I'm asking God to protect me, to take care of me. Well, what does this mean? Does this mean I can do whatever I want? I can rob banks, cheat on my taxes, cheat on my husband, be a nasty person and ask God's care and protection? Uh-uh, doesn't work like that. Um, so thinking back to like middle school social studies, I think of it like a serf who works on the king's land. And you remember the errors when all the, the kings were there and, you know, the invading armies come. And if I'm safe and protected on the king's land, when the invading army comes, my king is going to pull up the drawbridges and I'm on the land and I'm safe and protected. I'm under his protection and care. 
But let's say I wander off the land because I think I can make better decisions for the king because I don't think the king is treating me well enough because I think maybe there's a better king because I just want to reserve for myself the right to be angry at people and I wander off the king's land. Well, when the invading army comes and the king pulls up his drawbridges, I'm not going to be under his protection and care, not because the king doesn't love me, but because I've wandered off this land. And fortunately, our king is so good that he doesn't just protect us and take care of us, but he'll send a search and rescue party out for us to bring us back. But he'll never force us back. Um, so it says, okay, we ask God's care and protection with complete abandon. And then it says, here are the steps we took, which are suggested as a program of recovery. Um, it starts out, we admit we're powerless over food and our lives are unmanageable. And the first nine steps are about unblocking our channel to God. Then our 10th step, once we've recovered, we unblock our channel to God from the mess we created that day. In step 11, we pray and meditate so that God fills our channel. And step 12, our channel of grace overflows to others because we've had a spiritual awakening. And then we do two things. We try to carry this message of how to recover from compulsive eating to other compulsive eaters and to practice these principles in all our affairs, honesty, self-sacrifice, tolerance. Um, Karen M. once went through the whole big book and made a list of all the principles in the book. They're on our website. So if someone wants to throw that link into the chat, that would be great. So then it says, many of us exclaimed, what an order, I can't go through with it. They say, don't be discouraged. Um, no one among us has been able to maintain anything like perfect adherence to these principles. Notice they say perfect adherence to the, these principles, love, tolerance, forgiveness. It doesn't say we have not been able to maintain perfect adherence to our food plan. Because if God removes the obsession with alcohol, with food, we can have perfect adherence to our plan. So then it says, we claim spiritual progress rather than spiritual perfection. Well, how do we know if there's spiritual progress? I think we can look at ourselves and say, okay, self, um, when I used to get resentful, I would stay resentful for three days. Okay, hmm, in the last couple months, it's been two days. And then in the last week, it's been like one day and usually I can resolve them with an hour. I think it's really healthy every now and then to just get together with ourselves or maybe our sponsors and to just say, okay, am I showing spiritual progress? Am I growing closer to God? Am I staying in resentment less? Am I being of more use to others? Am I less selfish? We're always going to feel selfish. Um, Saturday, I was doing some returns of some, I moved to North Carolina. So, you know, of course I had to buy some new clothes and I had a bunch of returns. And so I had three boxes that my husband was going to label and take to the, to UPS for me. And then I was going to go to Staples because there's some stores that actually let you return things to Staples. So he said, oh, okay. And while you're there, can you, I bought the wrong ink cartridge. Can you return it to me? And the initial reaction in my heart and my head, but I didn't say it was, no, I don't want to be inconvenienced. I was going there anyway. 
Um, but of course I said, of course I'll go. But I saw my instant reaction. So again, you know, spiritual progress rather than spiritual perfection. Maybe before work, for sure, before this program, I would have said, no, I don't want to be inconvenienced. But now I went and I'm grateful for the opportunity to be inconvenienced. So spiritual progress rather than spiritual perfection. Hopefully next time he asks me to do something, the reaction in my heart and my head will instantly be, of course. Then I think one of the most important parts of the big book, the ABCs, right? Um, so we've taken the first two steps and it says, okay, now we have to go through three pertinent ideas and we can't move on until we've gone through them. A, that we were compulsive eaters and could not manage our own lives. Well, that's usually pretty easy, right? We're here, yes, I'm a compulsive eater, I can't manage my life. B, that probably no human power could have relieved my alcoholism, my compulsive eating. Yes, I realize I can't do it, no one else can do it for me. Now here's the tricky part. C, that God could and would if he were sought. So I always like to take this slowly. So I'll say to someone, okay, do you believe that God could remove someone else's compulsive eating? And they say, well, yes, I know, you know, 20, 30, 50 people he's done it for. So he could. Okay, could he do it for you if he wanted to? He may not want to, but could he if he wanted to? And if we have, you know, any personal honesty, we have to say, well, yes, he's God. He could. Do you believe he will if you seek him? And this is when if people are honest, they often say, no, he could, but he won't for me. And then I would ask why. And I have found that it's one of five reasons. Let me see if I can remember them. One, I've done something really bad. Two, I'm not worthy. And I think that's the most common. Three, um, I don't deserve it. It's like kind of my fault. Four, I've tried so many times before and it hasn't worked. And five, I'm not willing to do the work to seek him. And I'll just say right off the bat, if it's number five and you're saying, I'm not willing to do the work to seek him, you are absolutely right. He won't restore you to sanity because the condition is God could and would if he were sought through prayer, meditation, self-sacrifice for the good of others, clearing up the wreckage of our past, surrendering to his will as best we can. But what if someone says, I've done this really bad thing or some really bad things? Then I would say, you are in great company because so did all the founders of AA. That's why there's a ninth step in this program. Y'all have a chance to fix it. But what about the person who says, I just don't deserve it. I'm not worthy. There's just this like feeling of shame, not so much for anything I've done. Maybe people have, in my life have told me I'm, you know, I'm a piece of crap. Maybe I just don't feel worthy. And they say, I'm not worthy. And then I say, you have two options. You could go to a therapist and spend like, I don't know, $20,000 to have her help you get high self-esteem, but that won't work. And the other thing is to realize the word worthiness 
is nowhere in this book. It is not a requirement for God's help. Worthiness isn't a requirement. Only willingness is. I certainly was not worthy and still am not worthy for all that God did for me and is doing for me. Thank God worthiness isn't a requirement. He doesn't care if we're worthy. He only cares if we're willing. Um, the third thing, it's my fault. I mean, we can debate whether we, you know, we cause this, we're born with it. You know, somewhere in the book, it says this is a self-imposed crisis. Elsewhere in the book, it says we don't know how we got it. So we don't know. But let's assume it is my fault. Right. OK, so let's I'm just say who's unmuted. Um, let's assume that it is my fault. Um, so. Let's say also that I'm walking across the street, looking at my cell phone. And as I'm looking at the cell phone, a truck hits me and I break both my legs. And then the ambulance comes. Am I going to say to the ambulance driver, don't take me to the hospital to have a doctor fix my legs because it's my fault. I was looking at my phone, it's my fault. Go away, leave me here to bleed with my broken bones. Of course we wouldn't say that. But when it comes to God and getting spiritual help, we get all noble and say, oh, I can't go to God because it's my fault. We don't have to be noble. God knows if it's our fault and he doesn't care, he'll help us anyway. The fourth thing is I've tried it so many times and it hasn't worked. Well, that is like me, I just did again, trying to take a picture with my cell phone, but pushing the wrong buttons. I'm not gonna be able to take a picture, even if I've tried for six and a half years. But if after six and a half years, someone comes along and shows me the right buttons to push, it doesn't matter whether it's my first meeting or a meeting after six and a half years, suddenly I'll be able to take pictures. I got a lot of bad information, unfortunately. I'm not a victim, I had a big book. It was collecting dust on my bookshelf, um, but I had a book. But, may, but I hadn't been given good information until someone stood up at a convention and said, I haven't binged in a year and I can help you. If that's you and you feel you haven't got correct information, call me, call someone else who's recovered, we will help you. We will show you the right button to push. So there's So once we go through it, it's like, okay, now, do you believe that God could and will if you seek him. And generally we a person works through that and then it's yes. And then we move on. Being convinced, well, being convinced of what? Being convinced that God can and will restore me to sanity, we're at step three, which is we decided. So it's a decision that I make with my will to turn my will and my life over to God as I understand him, my will obedience and surrender, my life. I trust that he's going to take care of me. And it says, okay, what do we mean by that? Like, it's a weird concept, like turn it over. What does that mean? Um, it says, what does it mean? What do we do? So it says the first requirement is we be convinced that any life run on self-will can hardly be a success. Well, I think it's probably easy for most of us to say, my life is not a success. And we're on a collision with other people, even though we have good motives. Juanice, do you have your book with you? Can you read this paragraph and the next in the first person for me, please? Yes. Okay. From the okay. first requirement? Yeah. 
The first requirement is that I be convinced that my life run on self-will can hardly be a success. On that basis, I am almost always in collision with something or somebody, even though my motives are good. Most people try, I always try to live by self-propulsion. I'm, I'm like an actor who wants to run the whole show. I'm forever trying to arrange the lights, the ballet, the scenery, and the rest of the players in my way. If my arrangements would only stay put, if only people would do as I wish, the show would be great. Everybody, including myself, would be pleased. Life would be wonderful. In trying to make these arrangements, I am all I, I may sometimes be quite virtuous. I may be kind, considerate, patient, generous, even modest and self-sacrificing. On the other hand, I may be mean, egotistical, selfish, and dishonest. But as with most human, most humans, I am more likely to have very, very traits. That ring a bell with anyone? Um, there's one time when my husband and my son were just not behaving well at all, objectively. Um, and I called someone and she sat there and I said, I can't believe what they're doing. And she read this to me in the first person. And as she did, I'm like, that's me. That's me. I want people to behave a certain way. I want them to be a certain way. And then what usually happens, the show doesn't come off very well. Whenever we're upset and we think life is a mess, I think it's really helpful to read these two paragraphs out loud in the first person. I begin to think life doesn't treat me right. Well, that's a whole dose of self-pity. And as my friend Roxanne says, self-pity parties end with a cake. Um, so we have to be really careful of self-pity. I decide to exert myself more. I become on the next occasion more demanding or gracious read manipulative as the case may be. And then it says, what is my basic trouble? Am I not really a self seeker even when trying to be kind? So this is what life pre third step means. It means I do something in order to get a result. Even if that result may be good, like try to get my husband to stop smoking, try to get my grown kids to go to church. I'm trying to get a result. Results are good. No one could argue that, you know, my kids shouldn't go to church or my husband should smoke. But that's me trying to get my will done, being a self-seeker. A third step means I do God's will and I leave the results up to him. I'm out of the outcome business. So for instance, pre-third step, I may take my kids to church all the time when they're young. And then when they're older, you know, every week say, did you go to church? Even though they're two and a half hours away from me, did you go to church? Remind them, nag them, tell them how they're breaking my heart. I'm trying to do a good thing, get them to go to church. No, post-third step, I still take them to church when they're younger, but once they're out of my house, I don't try to manipulate or control them. I can pray, but I cannot tell them what they should do. I shouldn't, cannot manipulate them by telling them that they're breaking my heart. And by the way, if my heart is being overly broken by what someone else is doing or not doing, I've made that person an idol and I need to knock it off. Um, so I do what I think is God's will, 
and I leave the results up to him. And boy, does that make for a lot more peace. I leave my health up to him. I leave my kids' well-being up to him. I leave what's going on in the Middle East up to him. Um, I don't take the weight of the world on my shoulders. I do what I think God would have me do. And that's it. And then I let it go. Bottom of 61, what does it tell us we're like? Our actor, me, is self-centered. It compares us to the retired businessman in Florida complaining of the sad state of the nations, right? He's looking at what other people are doing, what the sad state of the nations, what the president is doing, what the people who don't like the president are doing, you know, picking sides, what they're doing. The minister who sighs over the sins of the 20th century, what they're doing wrong. Politicians and reformers who are sure all would be utopia if they, the other people, would behave. The outlaw safecracker who says, they, society has wronged me. And the alcoholic, the compulsive eater, who's lost all and is locked up. You know, I once heard um, G.K. Chesterton, he was a famous religious writer, and he was in London, and the London Times was soliciting articles for what's wrong with the world. And I guess people wrote in long, flowery essays. And he just wrote in, Dear Sirs, I am sincerely G.K. Chesterton. I am. That's all I need to look. I don't need to look at what's going on at the Middle East. If I want, I can pray, I can give money, you know, something, or get involved with the cause if I feel called to it. I don't have to, you know, just sit there and, you know, get into discussions about politics or religion or, you know, this, you know, Kardashian or something. I don't have to do any of that. All I have to do is think, Father, what would you have me do today? And to try to do it well. And then it tells me the root of my troubles, selfishness and self-centeredness. That's the root. Now think about a tree. We don't see the roots. We see the fruits. So we might not see the selfishness and self-centeredness, but we see the fruits, resentments, fears, and harms to others. That's what we see. So we have to kind of get a root transplant. You know, we're selfish and self-centered. The antidote is to become God-centered and other-centered. Okay, how do we do that? Prayer, meditation, inventorying to clean up our past, making amends and self-sacrifice service to others. Picking up a phone when I'm sitting in my air-conditioned or heated house to make an outreach call is not a self-sacrifice. Unless I'm getting up half an hour early, you know, setting my alarm early in order to do it. Self-sacrifice means I'm giving something up to help other people. So it tells us our troubles are basically of our own making. Well, this is great. If I'm the basis of my own troubles, no one else has to change for me to get better. But notice it says basically of our own making. So there's a caveat here. If someone is like raped at gunpoint or a child is molested, those problems are not of their own making. But most of our troubles are not that kind. And it tells us we are self-will run riot, though we usually don't think so. So just because we don't think so doesn't mean we're not. Um, above everything, so this tells me, number one, we alcoholics 
must get rid of this selfishness. We must, or it kills us. God makes that possible. And we can't get rid of self without his help. We can't reduce our self-centeredness much by wishing or trying on our own power. Well, how come? Why can't I just say, man, I realize I'm self-centered. I'm going to stop. Here's the answer. Because we have to be centered around something. We are hardwired to worship. And if I'm not worshiping myself, there has to be something else in its place. Now, you know, when I was younger, I would put some guy there as the one I would worship. That didn't do me any good. Um, we are hardwired to worship. And usually we worship, our book tells us, things, money, other people, ourselves. We have to start centering our lives around God. And a way we do that is submission to his will, and being kind to his other children. That's it. It's as simple as that. And they said, okay, this is the how and why of it. Like, okay, we're getting down to brass tacks and I only have 10 minutes left. Um, first, we had to quit playing God. I stopped trying to do things to get a result. Why? Because it's not holy or spiritual? No. Well, it isn't, but because it didn't work. That's the reason. Next, we decided hereafter in this drama of life, God was going to be our director not another person, not a group, God. He is the principal, we're his agents. So a principal has work he wants done and an agent is the person he asks to help him. What an honor it is, right? That God is launching search and rescue missions for the people who wander off the reservation and we get to be his agents in that. What an honor. But we're not just agents. He is the father and we are his children. And some people may not have had the world's best father. but say he is the loving father and we are his beloved children. He says most good ideas are simple. And this concept was the key. The arch through which we'll pass the freedom. And then it gives us the third step promises. Page 63, when we sincerely took such a position, what position? The position that I am going to surrender my life to this loving God and try and do his will as best I can. Here's what we get. We have a new employer with a capital E, right? An employer, generally, that's where we get our the money that, you know, so we can like buy food and clothing and pay our mortgage. We have an employer. Now I have an employer with a capital E. What's he going to do? He's going to provide what we need, not always what we want, but what we need if. So this is a conditional promise. So when people say God always makes everything work out for the best, that is not true. That, or, I mean, that's not what the book says. It says we'll get what we need if we do two things. A, stay close to him, prayer, meditation, surrender, and perform his work well, help others. Established on this footing where we've surrendered, these are the results. We become less interested in ourselves. We become more interested in seeing what we could contribute to life. As we felt new power flow in, remember lack of power, that's our problem. And step two is where we get our first infusion of power. Well, now we get more power. What else do we get? Peace of mind. We can face life successfully. We're conscious of his presence. We start becoming aware, not just that of belief in God, 
but an awareness of his presence. And we begin to lose our fear. Our fears don't completely go away at this point, and that's okay, but they begin to go away of today, tomorrow, or the hereafter, we're reborn. And then we do our third step. And it says, God, I offer myself to thee to build with me and do with me as thou will. God, take the raw material of me and do whatever you want with it. Relieve me of the bondage of self. Why? So I can have an easy, happy life? Uh-uh. So I can better do thy will. Take away my difficulties. Why? So I can be a witness of your power, your love, and your way of life. And we say a prayer to do his will always. And it says, okay, the wording is optional. I mean, um, most of us like to do this third step prayer just because it's so perfect. And it says the wording is optional as long as we express the idea, voicing it without reservation. We can only voice it without reservation if we trust that there is a God. And as we work this program, as we work step one and step two, you know, step two is chock full of ways we can come to believe that there's a God who cares about us. And then we can turn our life over to him in step three. And it says when we do, sometimes a very great effect is felt at once. And I believe that even though we may not feel a great effect, once we surrender to God, a great effect starts happening in our heart and he commences his rewiring job. And with that, I pass. Thanks.